Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you enjoy the Bumps and Thumps podcast. In order to continue to get the guests on and improve our podcast, we need support from listeners like you. That financial support helps us continue to do the podcast and get guests on that we normally would not be able to get on the show. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N and the number three after and click on the support button. There will be options there for you to make a monthly contribution. With your contribution, we can continue to conduct the podcast and ask more well-known wrestlers from the past and present that require financial compensation to be on the podcast. Again, please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N and the number three and click on the support button. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you for joining the second part of our conversation with George Steyer on Bumps and Thumbs. We now continue our conversation on the podcast. Managers, uh, you talked about Cornette, how you knew him when he was a kid. Uh, you guys were 10 years apart. Uh, did you have any interaction with like Bobby Heenan or Johnny Valiant in the AWA? Uh... Yes. Uh, Jim Cornette was, like I said, he's 10 years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And for those people trying to figure out how old I am, because I said I was six years old in, in uh, 57, I'm 69. So Jim Cornette is 59 right now, but him and I exchanged programs for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. And I also ex- had a, a program exchange uh, for a number of years going on with a very young guy named Paul Heyman. Ah, before he ever got involved, even close to wrestling. Yes. I don't know how, I don't know how old Paul is, but um, he's younger than I am. Yeah. But uh, yeah, long before he uh, got involved. So this program exchange thing, it really grew into a thing where I could collect these programs from all over the country. Mm-hmm. And today to this very moment, I have seven file cabinets in my wrestling room. that are all year by year of programs. The thing that's good about them is that when I want to do research, I can go to those programs. Not only do I have the cards in the majority of them, I have the results. So I can be more accurate than something that is on the internet at times. And in, in 1968, 69, with having started this, I really started to get interested in, wouldn't it be nice to know what Pepper Gomez is doing when he's in California? So I'd start putting their matches together and then I'd put different, you know, so I would research them. Well, then I got excited about, well, what if I did their matches from all the cities they wrestled in? And so it all kind of just happens by accident. But in those days, Brian, we didn't have the luxury to Google in a wrestler and, and hopefully you get a pile of results on the internet. Yeah. I had to go to the library. You go to the library and you dig out old newspapers. And I mean, you, 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 you said you live in, in Rice Lake. Yep. Well, back in those days, I would have went and I'd have found, if I possibly could, a Rice Lake newspaper and try to find wrestling, little clippings that they yeah. might put in there. Yeah. That's how I compiled and myself and other uh, results historians, so to speak. This is how we did it mm. back in that pre-internet era. 
And I can't tell you the number of hours that I spent after school in the school library or later on spending a whole Saturday at the, the local library mm-hmm. going through microfilm or microfiche and old newspapers and that sort of thing. And then getting these correspondence that can help you and put things together. Yeah. So that all came together. Now to answer your question about the managers. So I knew Cornette, I knew Heyman. I never wanted to be a manager. I never wanted to be a wrestler. If I was going to be anything involved in wrestling, I honestly think it would have been, I want to be an announcer. Yeah. It was Marty O'Neill. Yeah. I wanted to do TV. Yeah. I did go to school for broadcasting. I have a degree. I graduated from Brown Brown Institute. I got a degree in radio and television broadcasting, but I never, I was never able to pull the plug and go move somewhere because radio is an unstable business then and now. Yeah. You know, there's no job stability in it unless you are able to land a huge market WCCO or something, you might get lucky. So I never really pursued it as a career, but over the last uh, 45 years, I have, I'm telling you, I think I've probably done over a thousand podcasts. I've wow. done radio shows. I've hosted wrestling radio shows. I've yep. been the guest on shows. I've been on TV wrestling shows. And I had the chance in, in the eighties to work up in Winnipeg and work for the, uh, kind of an independent group, but a member of the NWA and, and do television up there as the TV host for, uh, West Four Wrestling okay. with Tony Condello, an old wrestler. And so that was some of my, and that happened by accident too. He had an announcer, Tony Condello, who was doing the show and he kept mumbling, he kept stumbling over the wrestlers' names. And Condello came back and he was, Jesus Christ, what? <laughs> he's, on, he's trying to do TV and he just looks at me and he says, can you do any better? I said, I can try. Well, I went out. This is the first time, I swear to you, I've never been actually on TV with a microphone. And I went on TV. I had the notes of the card, the wrestlers, what they were supposed to do. And I did the interviews. And we did about six weeks worth. And I I loved it. But I had to go to Winnipeg. And I couldn't do that because now I'm in my banking career. So, you know, it was fun. That's uh, that's. Well, Bobby Heenan. Yes, Bobby Heenan. I knew Bobby Heenan. Um, not, I, I will never say I knew him really close, mm-hmm. but I had a unique experience with Bobby Heenan many years later when I had the opportunity for an independent group here in the Twin Cities. And this is in the early 2000s, late, late 90s, very early 2000s. It was an independent, and I want to tell you that I'd already lost, been walked away from the modern day product, so to speak. Yeah. But this independent group, I was asked to be a manager for the group, a heel manager. (laughs) And I thought it was kind of funny because, you know, I don't consider myself a heel, but uh, some of my family might tell you I am. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I was a heel called the authority. Ah, and do, do you know Mick Karch? I do not, sir. No. Okay. Well, Mick Karch was the one that gave me the name, the authority on his old wrestling program, Saturday night at ringside. Okay. So I'm the authority, but the idea with the name was, is that I had to be a Bobby Heenan and a Jim Cornette and all these guys. Yeah. And 
I had my wife make me a black jacket, ring jacket with a big sequined red A on the back and a big A on the chest, red collar. It was, it's a beautiful jacket. I have it hanging in my wrestling room. And I put this jacket on and I went to the card and I said to the promoter, he says, what are you, what are you doing putting that on? I said, you want me to be a heel? Let me do this. This will work. Yeah. Okay, so he gave me control. I went to the ring. I put this jacket on. I went to the ring and I got into the ring. And I, first of all, I insulted all the pig farmers out there. You big fat, <laughs> you know, you're here to see wrestling and the nice ladies look at sitting next to you. You got this big fat guy next to you. I mean, and I want to tell you what this, I want to tell you what this A on my back stands for. And they did exactly what I told the promoter they would do. As soon as I said, this A stands for, they all started shouting, asshole, asshole. <laughs> and that was, I went back to the dressing room and I said to the promoter, I said, see, that's what we wanted. Yeah. It worked. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got to manage about four guys. You've got the long riders on your shelf yes. there? Yes, I do in the back. Yeah. I got to manage Wild Bill Irwin. Oh, for wow. this independent group. Yeah. And it was it was crazy that he was he was a, he was crazy wild. Yeah. But he also has the same birthday as me by the way. Oh wow. Yeah, September 17th. Okay. Anyway, so and I think he was I think he was born in 61 too. Uh, don't correct me on that, but I think he might have been. Okay. Anyway, I mean the same year as Cornette was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 61. Well, anyway, but the guys I was managing, um, the, the main guy was a guy named Old School St. Holmes, Derek St. Holmes. And Derek St. Holmes was playing a baby face. He'd come in the ring with a towel around his neck when he got introduced. He had just a pair of tights on and a pair of trunks. He'd, he'd advertise himself as a scientific wrestler, old school, thus the name. Yeah. But when I was his manager... I would, I would come out and I would tell the announcer, get away from me. I'll do his ring announcing because you're not good enough to do it. And so I would introduce him and I would say, he is better than Luthez, Pat O'Connor, Vern Gagne, Jack Briscoe. And I'd go down this whole long list of scientific wrestlers. And you're looking at the greatest there is. And of course, old school St. Holmes. Well, then he would break the rules and I would interfere and he would win, but he wouldn't win legally. Yeah. So the whole gimmick was, is that he had this pesky manager and he was parading around as a baby face when he was really a dirty wrestler. It was a perfect <laughs> gimmick. I loved it. So one night, this is where the Bobby Heenan story comes in. One night, Bobby Heenan is at this card uh -huh. and Bobby Heenan comes up to me and he says to me, during your match with when old homes, old school is in there, he says, I'm going to come to ringside and I'm going to be like, I'm giving you a tip and I'm going to pretend I'm handing you something like a foreign object. Mm -hmm. So the fans, I mean, this was a small crowd. They probably had two, 300 people. We're talking an independent wrestling yeah. card. Yeah. Well, Bobby Heenan comes to ringside. The announcers at the table played it up. You know, what is Bobby Heenan doing? Holy cow. What is he here for? And what's he doing with the authority? Well, he comes up and he's talking to me and you can, you can see him handing me something. And I'm sticking it in my pocket. Well, eventually I'm handing this to old school 
and he wins his match and Bobby's out of the picture. (laughs) So Bobby Heenan is interviewed and they ask him, what did you hand the authority? He says, I was giving them a tip on the Vikings game on Sunday. It's none of your business. (laughs) Okay. But here, here was my interaction with Bobby then after that card. And I took this honestly, Brian, I took it as a great compliment. He said, you did a really good job out there tonight. And he said, the only advice I give you is just be careful. Yeah. Cause I wasn't, you know, this is what 20 years ago, I'm 49 years old, give or take. And yeah. I'm not going to get in the ring. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. And so he just said, you know, be careful. And that was really my only real interaction with him until a few years later when we had a chance to talk and stuff at Cauliflower Alley Club yeah. uh, reunions. But it was, it was a fun experience because I did have that one contact where he handed me a foreign object. And actually, he didn't hand me anything. It was, it was a pretend to old, old school where he's got it in his hand and he cocks him with you know. It was great. That's great. That's that's great. Yeah. Uh, let's. You talk mainly about some of your favorite moments there in wrestling. So um, you've had a lot of stories and a lot of interaction with people. Some big card events. So uh, Super Sunday, Super Clash. Were you at those? Were you part of those in any way? I was for the AWA. Okay. Um, here's the way I'm going to describe what, uh, what happened. You know, here I am all these 50 some years later, 60 some years later, and I'm still a wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. I am a wrestling fan of the old product, of course. Yes. In the, the early eighties, one of the things that I noticed and, and myself and a mutual friend of mine at the time, Jim Melby, we discussed how, when we'd go to the matches in the early eighties, Wrestling attendance in the AWA in 1981, 82, and 83, they had their most uh, prosperous years, Mm -hmm. money-wise. But it wasn't just in the AWA. It it was all over the country. It seemed like there was a new generation of young wrestling fans, and you were, well, probably in that group. There were this segment of the population that were there to see the Hulk Hogan's and the junkyard dogs and the, the free birds and the road warriors a little bit, just a little bit later, mm-hmm. but th- they were drawing the fans in. Yeah. And when we'd go to the matches, I'll tell you this, typically on a Minneapolis or a St. Paul wrestling card or any of the cards that I would travel to. Mm-hmm. And over the years I, I drove and flew to places like St. Louis, Tampa, Houston, Boston, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Omaha, Oklahoma City. I'm probably leaving out six of them. I don't know. (laughs) An average, you go in and you see the attendance at these cards and an average good card would draw six, seven, eight, 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. Well, we get to the early 80s and now this attendance all over the country, these promoters were drawing 20,000 card sellouts. Yeah. We were in a lot in the St. Paul Civic Center at that time, and 20,000 was about capacity for a wrestling card. And it was every card, but it wasn't, you know, and that's what these young fans were, they were drawn, the younger teenagers. So my friend Jim and I, we started to say, you know, it's not as much fun being there because the intimacy is gone. I mean, there was a certain amount of, it was your show. And the business was slowly changing. Yeah. 
So we get to 1984. And really before 1984, when Vince McMahon fired that first bullet and started raiding some of the territories, wrestling was a regional uh, promotion situation. We had like 26 territories around the United States. There was wrestling every night of the week. 365 days a year. If you wanted to travel and you could do it, you could hit a card every night somewhere. Yeah. But McMahon decided he's going to go national and television had changed. We're now having, uh, we were beyond the closed circuit era television. Mm -hmm. Now we're into past uh, pay-per-view possibilities and McMahon, he he's 33 years old or whatever he is at the time he has this vision the thing was, is a lot of other promoters had the same vision. Yeah. They just didn't know how to orchestrate it. And a lot of them, the old school promoters, you got guys like Vern Gagne, who's 60 years old at the time. You got Bill Watts, who's up in the years. You got Paul Bosch, who's up in the years. You got Eddie Graham, who's up in the years. You got Roy Shire out in California, who's up in the years. Don Owen in Omaha or in uh, Portland. Uh, Sam Wichnick in St. Louis. Everybody, they're all 60, 70 years old. They're very old school minded. They had done their promoting and it was successful for so many decades yeah. that they didn't see the train coming down the track. Mm-hmm. They, they were blind to it and they didn't believe it was real. They didn't believe that Vince McMahon had a chance. That was part of the problem. So they weren't going to change their ways. Well, Vince McMahon, he says, I got to have a poster child for my promotion I got to have one man that's going to be the WWF at the time. Right. And he targeted Hulk Hogan. Now, Hulk Hogan, anybody that wants to look this up, and this is all fact, Vern Gagne created Hulkamania. Right. When Hulk Hogan Hogan came, and there's an interview, you want to look at interviews on YouTube, pull up Johnny Valiant and Hulk Hogan talking on an interview with Mean Gene. Okay. And Hulk Hogan first came to the AWA. You listen to that interview, and this is why Vern put him with Johnny Valiant, because Hulk Hogan couldn't, he couldn't get a sentence out without stumbling. He did not have the interview technique down. And he needed, he was going to be pushed as a heel. He needed a, a mouthpiece. And that was the reason that luscious Johnny Valiant was put with him. So Vern worked with him on the interviews. Eventually, the fans started cheering Hogan. Yeah. It was just happening. And sometimes the fans create the the curve of wrestling more than the promoters do. As much as Vern wanted to make him a heel, I mean, he'd have been a natural heel. He was six foot hundred, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. as, as David Schultz would say, he had an abnormal head, you know. <laughs> so... Um, He would have made a perfect heel because he just pound everybody into defeat. That would have been the logic, but the fans were cheering him. So Vern had to change course and obviously make him a a baby face exit Johnny Valiant because you can't have that manager there anymore. And Hulk became huge. Mm -hmm. And then he was going over to Japan. He was making a lot of money in Japan. He was over huge over there. Yeah. And it got to the point where Hulk Hogan became really the biggest star at that moment in time for all-star or for professional wrestling. And that's why Hogan targeted him. Well, then Hogan left 
Yeah. And that was a huge blow to the AWA. Yeah. But we, we, we were still two or three years away before any of this would really affect the promotion in a really negative way. Because yeah. each promotion, McMahon would go in and handpick guys. He went to Mid-South and he took Junkyard Dog. Now, Junkyard Dog in the Mid-South in the early 80s was their Hulk Hogan. Right. He was that over. He was that big. And he had a great feud going with Big Bad Leroy Brown, which was a takeoff on the old, um, oh boy, I just about said it. Meaner than a junkyard dog. Who sings that song? Yeah. Uh, Big Bad Leroy Brown, meaner than a junkyard yeah, dog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I Jim, is it Jim? Jim Croce. Jim Croce. So there was a takeoff on that feud because they had a wrestler, Big Bad Leroy Brown down there. Yeah. And then the Freebirds, how big they were in in uh, Fort Worth, Dallas area for yeah. for the Von Erich Group. Yeah. Well, McMahon took the took the uh, Freebirds, and then he got Randy Poffo or Randy Savage. Yeah. And he'd go in and and he'd take different wrestlers and took the Million Dollar Man. That was from uh, Mid South. Bill Watts never did anything with him other than make him a, a great baby face. And he was, yeah. he was a great worker, Ted DiBiase. Yeah. yeah. So that whole promotion thing, that's when I started to sort of lose interest. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the eighties, I had seen a lot of the territories struggle. Some of them folded, some lasted a little bit longer than others, Yeah. but eventually the product was so different. And I still followed it until about 1993 I think 93 was when they had the great Ricky Steamboat versus Ric Flair yeah. series of matches for the title and of course I was a, I, I knew both of these wrestlers they came out of the AWA mm -hmm. I saw Ricky Steamboat in his very first live match as a as a rookie and the same with Ric Flair so I was hanging on for those the guys that were still in the business from when I was growing up yeah and then as the 90s went on, the business changed a lot. And I yeah. just, so I don't follow it today. I, I follow it enough to know that if somebody talks about a wrestler, I know of them, yeah. but I'm just not into it. It's different. Yeah. And then McMahon went in 1989 and said that it's no longer, or it's no, it's not real. It's entertainment. Yeah. And uh, to get out of paying taxes, it didn't hurt the business. A lot yeah. of wrestlers wanted him, you know, when he, broke the kayfabe like that yeah i remember nick bockwinkle said that mcmahon should be at the bottom of the river with cement shoes on for, for breaking <laughs> that was a true statement yeah for breaking kayfabe yeah. but because they were afraid that it was going to ruin the business but it hasn't fans yeah. today like it because and here's the thing all the years that i was a young fan i knew that it wasn't real the right. endings i knew that uh, it was predetermined, and I I never told anybody. Right. Even when people would say to me, "You watch that stuff, you know it's not real." I I yeah. never got into it with it. Yeah. yeah. So that was my experience. I faded away from it that, in that respect. Yeah. Now to answer your question, I was at the Super Sundays. I was at the Super Clash. Um, they were fun places to be. I was still very into it. Yeah. And I wanted the promotions to succeed. I thought it was exciting in the beginning when the promoters yeah. were kind of working together. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, when when Vern Gagne tried to work with Jerry Jarrett out of the Memphis territory and with 
uh, Fritz von Erich in, in Dallas. And um, there was another one in there. He worked with Crockett a little bit too. Yeah, Crockett. When they tried to work together, the whole problem became they all wanted to be the chief. Yeah. You're going to all put my guy on top. And they were fighting amongst themselves. So Mc, McMahon, he literally didn't have to do anything when you think about it. He just had to watch them all implode. Yeah. And too he, bad. he succeeded. And he's a millionaire. And he puts on a product that people love. You know, how can I knock it? Everybody's enjoying wrestling today like I enjoyed it when I was young. Well, I will tell you, um, from my perspective, uh, looking back, you know, I've watched some YouTube and stuff. I have uh, some DVDs. It's changed a lot. I mean, obviously, from the 80s to now. I think the most that's changed for me is that it's all, well, I shouldn't say all. A lot of it is already scripted. Their interviews are already pre-done. You know, they don't just go out there and, speak from their mind or their heart that's already pre-written for them and they're i mean there's a little bit of heat you can tell on some of them i think right now like my favorite one is probably chris jericho uh i just well chris jericho is old school too yeah and you know he had training from some of the old guys you know, right and greg and jim were instrumental in some of that and when i mentioned his name they yeah. think a lot of chris jericho and so i i do i admire chris yeah and I think too that with that, uh, I think wrestling. I think if it went back, it would take time to go back to that, <laughs> the kayfabe. Like they actually, you want to believe that? Okay, this guy really cannot stand <laughs> a, cannot stand b, or whatever. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, here's here's the way I look at it. Um, yeah, I've always thought, wouldn't it be fun if we could go back and, you know, but maybe it has to go completely away for about 10 years yeah. and then try to bring it back. I don't know. But the thing that was the major thing about the difference, Brian, is in the kayfabe era, when we didn't know what happened, you know, you didn't know when you saw the crusher wrestling against Johnny Powers in this city that maybe the night before they were tag team partners in St. Louis, True. the average wrestling fan had no idea to know that okay. because we didn't today, if that happens, I mean, it's on the internet instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So because that rabbit has been exposed out of the magician's hat, yeah. I don't think it can ever go back the way it was. Yeah. But it, when you look at the, I don't know how it's been this year for the pandemic, but when you look at McMahon's success over the years, yeah, hey, he's making money. He's a billionaire a couple times over. Yeah. So he's doing something right. Yeah. And the people buy his, they buy his uh, merchandise, his yeah. memorabilia. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's, I mean, I like the, AEW, uh, the new one that's been out for about a year, a little over a year. Uh, right before the pandemic, my wife and I went to, uh, they had one in Kansas City here, an event at the, uh, well, now it's called the Cable Domer Arena, but it was Silverstein Arena, and it was great. I actually enjoyed it. Uh, there wasn't those long gaps on television, you know, when you had those long gaps in between uh, matches. It was on TV, but they actually put something on during the event. So it was good. So I, I enjoyed that. You know, when you talk about, you mentioned a moment ago, when you talked about the, the wrestling interviews all being scripted today, mm -hmm. 
Well, now this is just an opinion. So people take it for what it's worth. The the long uh, 20 minute scripted dissertations that take place in the ring. When in our day we had television and here's what they would do. They'd have a wrestling card on Saturday night and on Monday, they'd all go to the television studio and they would tape all day long and they would tape interviews for all of the cards that were going to run around the circuit for the next week or two mm-hmm. around the AWA circuit. And they did this in all territories, but in the AWA and the wrestlers, the only thing they would know is, okay, they're going to be in rice Lake and they're going to have, they're going to, they're going to be wrestling against the crusher mm-hmm. or where they were in that particular program. Like they wrestled last time there. And this time I'm getting even because this is why we're going to have a rematch. And so the wrestlers only had two to three minutes. So the Marty O'Neill or the, the mean gene or whoever the announcer was would give them their cue. Ray Stevens, Nick Bockwinkle, Larry Hennig, et cetera. They would take and run with it for two minutes. Ad lib. There, there was, and I, I sat, literally, I sat through some of these day long taping sessions. Yeah. And they, these guys had no scripts. Yeah. And, and you know how good, I mean, I, I don't know if you do all of them, but I know how good Ray Stevens and, and Larry Hennig and Nick yeah. Bockwinkle oh. and Bobby Heenan and Mad Dog Vashon. And I could give you, I could give you a couple hundred names of guys that they were so good on the microphone. Mm-hmm. And within that two minute time frame, they've got one thing to do. Number one, either make you hate them yep. or love them if they're a good guy. Yeah. And number two, the main objective is to get you to want to get off your couch. And as Marty O'Neill used to say at the end of every wrestling program on All-Star Wrestling, he'd say, fans, run, don't walk to get your tickets. Yeah. And that's what it was all about. Yeah. And it worked. It wrestling in the Twin Cities used to be on Saturday nights from 6 to 7.30 live. And if it was a tape show, it was because they didn't have a card that night. Mm -hmm. So they, and they would have interviews that they had done the week before that were inserted in there. But the live show goes till 7.30. The actual Minneapolis or St. Paul auditorium cards used to start at nine o'clock. Now, wrestling was always on a different time because it was a nine o'clock start time, but it was usually 20 or 25 after when they really did. Yeah. But the point was, it was a nine o'clock start. Yeah. And the fans, that's when they would have their biggest walk up between 7.30 and that nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. And there were times when they might sell a couple, three, 4,000 tickets just after the wrestling show, when they were able to get that interview, those interviews on, and maybe have a little... Uh, squirmish between two of the contestants that were going to be wrestling that night. And that's how they built their cards. So that's how they got over today. I've listened to them. Yeah. And they talk for 20 minutes and I'm like, when I get all done, what the hell did you just say? Right. Hello. Yeah. And of course today it's different too, because you know when someone's going to interfere or come out and interject something because they've got to play his entrance music first. So yep. the wrestler's talking away and all of a sudden somebody, and then he stops and looks. 
Well, in the old day, my book, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, cheap plug. But my book, the original title that I wanted for this book was Four Lights and a Ring. Oh, okay. The reason I wanted that title, and any old wrestling fan would immediately, that would draw them. Yeah. Here's what it was. In our day, when you went to the local auditorium, mm-hmm. you had four or sometimes three or four yeah. ring lights above the ring. Yeah. It shined down on the ring. The rest of the auditorium was dark. dark. And so when the ring announcer comes into the ring, you'd he'd introduce a wrestler. Now, if he introduced the crusher, you would you would hear the you could hear the rumblings of the crowd way in the back as the crusher comes out of the locker room and the crowd gets louder and louder yeah. as he gets closer because they're seeing him. Mm-hmm. And the same with the the, the the heel. You'd hear the boos as that <laughs> heel is coming in from the other side. Yeah. But you have the darkness, and then they'd come into the ringside area. Yeah. And there and I used to call it the four lights and the ring, their stage that they're working on. Yeah. And when they got in, they got introduced. Whereas today, you know this is true. Sometimes the introduction to the wrestler with their music and walking down the ramp is longer than their match their in match. the ring. Yep. Okay. Yep. So it has reversed itself. Yeah. But it sells today. So I can't say that it's wrong. Yeah. It's What I will say is that if there is a fan out there and you've never experienced my era Mm -hmm. back to the fifties and so on, then you can't make a a comparison. If you have, you can decide which one you like better. I've seen both and I like the old. I'll tell you. My four lights in a ring, they wouldn't take the title because the book was published by the Minnesota Historic the Minnesota Historical Society Press, okay. the Minnesota History Center in St. Paul, mm-hmm. and they wanted Minnesota in the name uh, to sell a Minnesota book. Yeah. So it's a book about the AWA per se. Yep. But that's how the title got changed. Okay. Well, that's good to know. See, we're learning stuff all the time. I will tell you, uh, the the fan, if they listen to this, the younger fans, uh, I'm 50. I just turned 50 uh, on the 4th of November. You told me that? Yeah. belated? Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, but. Hey, you're, you're a young buck. You're a young buck, man. <laughs> well. I, I'm at the stage where I'm thinking, was I 50? Yeah. But I'll tell I was you. 50, I was 50 during the week of 9-11 when that whole thing was taking place. Yeah, yeah. After. Yeah, week after. Yeah, week after. Yeah, that yeah. was bad news. It's terrible 9/11. time. Yeah, terrible time. 2001. Yeah, terrible time. But what I was going to say is uh, fans can get on YouTube, and if you just type in uh, 1950s pro wrestling, it comes up with – it has Minnesota uh, archives with Vern on there, Vern Gagne, and uh, – all those guys from back in the day and I watch them and, and they're really good. And, you know, it has changed drastically. Um, and it's good and bad, you know, obviously they're doing okay, but it, it, the the bad thing is the variety is limited because you only have two or three big, uh, promotions. Now we're back 
even in my day, in my early days, in the early 80s and late 70s, there was, like you said, 26 promotions. And I could still, when cable started coming in, I could watch world-class wrestling out of Dallas. I could watch the UWF out of, mm-hmm. uh, of the South. I could watch AWA. I could watch the NWA Georgia. I could watch uh, WWF out of New York. Well, and one of the things that happened out of that, Brian, was, and this is where kayfabe was broken even before McMahon blew the whistle in 89 Mm -hmm. because we started getting here in the twin cities. We started getting Georgia championship wrestling on the TBS Superstation. Yep. And what happened was, is that back about 10 years earlier and before that, when uh, Marty O'Neill would come on TV and say at the top of the program, he'd say, fans, we're sorry to report that after last night's or last week's matches, Pepper Gomez is going to be out of action for quite some time. His injuries, we don't know how serious they are, but he'll be out of action. Well, I could figure out by my programs, because I just got a San Francisco program that says he's in the main event out there. Yeah. But the average fan didn't know that, and they could get away with that. Yeah. But once the Superstation and your WCCW and some of these other stations were coming in, that also allowed the or destroyed it for the promoters because they can no longer say that someone is hurt or injured or whatever the situation because fans could see that wrestler yeah. in a different promotion. Yeah. So it started to change very early in the 80s, yeah. even in the late 70s, actually, because we were getting the Superstation in, in as early as 78, 79. Okay. And that was when cable was in its infancy. Yeah. And then, you know, not everybody had cable. No. So, you know, that's how it changed. Okay. Very interesting. Good to know. See, this is great conversation. I love it. (laughs) I really do. Let's talk about. You love it. I, you can tell just. Oh, I know. Throw me some bread a few, every few hours and. (laughs) um, A few more questions and then. Sure. Okay. Let's talk about the cauliflower alley club and the award you received in 2013 the james c melby wrestling historian award you'll notice that i mentioned jim melby a little bit earlier you did. yes that's as a friend. it's um 52 years ago this month no yeah 52 years ago this month that i met jim melby for the first time i was 17 jim was 19 wow and we both lived in the twin cities we didn't know each other Mm-hmm. We probably saw each other at the wrestling matches at the time, but didn't know each other. Yeah. And what had happened was Jim was, there was a, there was a, a magazine that was being published that was sold only at the arenas called Matt Mania. Okay. And for the time, and this is 1968 now, for the time period, Matt Mania was unique because it not only covered the AWA, but it covered other territories. Ah, okay. So a fan could buy this 50 cent magazine, Matt Mania, and it was, for lack of a better way of describing it, it was a crude publication in that it wasn't on glossy paper. It was, had this, it was stapled together, but it was typed out. It had some pictures in there. They weren't the clearest pictures. It wasn't the greatest publication in the world, but it really was a very informative magazine. Not that it broke anything kayfabe, but it always let you know where your favorite wrestler was. Yeah. So you could read that, you know, Bill Watts is down in wherever. So I subscribed 
to this magazine because I, again, I don't want to miss an issue. Yeah. I had bought two issues at the arena. I wanted to subscribe to it. So in August, I subscribed to this magazine. A month goes by. I don't get it. I don't get the latest issue. Another month goes by. I don't get the latest issue. Now we're in November. Okay. Of 1968. And I'm, I'm frustrated. Yeah. I sent my five bucks. Where's my, where's my magazine? Yeah. All of a sudden I go to my mailbox and I get this stapled at the top bulletin run off on the, remember the old, uh, well, I can't even say that. What were they? Mimograph machines. Yeah. I know what you're talking you know, about. The, the, the copies were very crude. Yeah. Okay. It's stapled at the top. It's got this loud and it's got hand printing on the cover and it's called wrestling results. I have no idea what this is. So I open it up and on the first page, there's this introduction by Jim Melby. And he explains that, sorry to inform you, but Matt Mania is no more. Bert Ray, the guy that was doing Matt Mania, had decided to up and not do it anymore. Oh, wow. And Melby decided that he would take over this magazine, the subscribers, and it was called Rasslin' Results. And what Jim did, now remember I mentioned the puzzles, the pieces before. Yes. Jim has this bulletin where he's just putting wrestling results in this it was like a five page bulletin stapled together. So there's some results in there from the Twin Cities and there's results from Oklahoma and, and Houston and so on and so forth. <laughs> I was at the moment I was livid. Yeah. I sent Jim Belby, his address was in there and it was in St. Paul. I sent him a letter. I had no idea who this guy was. Yeah. I sent him a letter. I wish I'd still had the letter or a copy of it because I know I wasn't nice to him. <laughs> I mean, I was telling him that I got ripped off and, and this is ridiculous, this hand printed, you know, so on and so forth. Well, another couple of weeks go by and I get no response, none to my letter. <laughs> Meanwhile, in my world, this guy, somebody took me for five bucks here. Yeah. You know, five bucks, that's a million to a 17 year old. <laughs> so one night I answer the phone. Hello? Is George there? This is George. Hi, George. Uh, my name is Jim Melby. And I remember I had this, like this heat go down my, I was scared. <laughs> he says, uh, I wanted to call you and tell you that I got your letter. And he was very cordial, very nice. Yeah. Told me that he'd be happy to send my money back if I wasn't interested in the bulletin. He said, but I noticed you lived in the Twin Cities. And he said, um, I've been a fan myself since 19, he told me 1960, so about eight years, started telling me about his first match. Well, lo and behold, we had Tidy Mills and Stan Kowalski in common, because that's where I kind of started in. And we, we ended up talking for two hours. Oh, wow. We became the best of friends, I swear to you. We yeah. started going to the matches together. Yeah. For the next number of years, we had our ringside seats together. We started driving to different towns together. I started doing results. I started, that's where I got interested in the results because it told a wrestler's story. 
Yeah. You know, if you knew he was a good guy in St. Louis and he was a bad guy in Minneapolis, that's cool. Yeah. You yeah. know, and now he's wrestling against the guy that he was teamed with. And that's where results became intriguing to me. So Jim was my teacher. Wow. And we, Jim and I would start going to the library and we'd sit there and we wouldn't talk. We'd be to the library for three hours. And we wouldn't talk to each other. We'd be looking through these stupid newspapers. <laughs> Jim, look at, look at, I found this one here. Look at in Oatana. We got to get this result down, these matches. That's how we did it. Yeah. So flash forward a million years. And Jim and I had remained friends all through the years. We had traded programs. We had traded results. We had, we loved music. We went to ball games. I mean, really what a good friend would do. Yeah. You know, together. Yeah. And, uh, and Jim in 1971, he had, uh, moved for a brief couple year period to New York mm -hmm. to take over along with Norman Keitzer, the wrestling review magazines that were published by the original magazine. I said, I bought in 1959. Yes. They were taking over that. They were going to become the editor of the publication and Jim was going to work for Norman. And so I had ringside seats. Jim had left. I had a ringside seat. I had two seats. Here's another piece of the puzzle. I asked a girl that I was working with, along with at uh, Dayton's department store at the time. Yeah, Dayton's. And uh, I asked her if, uh, well, somebody somebody was hooking us up together. It's a long story. But I ended up asking her if she wanted to go to the wrestling matches with me. Now, here's where the evil authority comes in. <laughs> I had went to matches with people before that, and they turned out to be like, how can you watch this stuff? I'm not going to go to that again. So my guard was up. Yeah. And if I was ever going to have a serious girlfriend, she had to like wrestling or accept wrestling. Yeah. So I took this girl to the matches, asked her to go. We had the seat that Jim had left because he's gone now. And for the next couple of years, her and I are going out. Well, Lo and behold, in January of 74, her and I got married. And here we are coming up on 47 years later. We're still married. She's still my princess. I love her to death. And it all happened because Jim Melby left. Yeah. And somebody set us up together. <laughs> so, but Jim Melby was the dean for results. And remember, I mentioned the fan clubs. Yep. So a lot of us wanted to put results records together for not only territories, but wrestlers individually. Uh -huh. And it's so much fun to do a wrestler's life results record. And they're never complete because just when you think you got every single match, oh my gosh, you'll find that small town, Rice Lake, or Wisconsin, where's that? Yeah. And here they wrestled there three times. So you got, you know, so you're like a little kid. I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning. I just got this, whoa. Yeah. So Jim and I did that for a number of years. In 2007, in February, it was um, actually uh, the, uh, the anniversary of the, the year that we actually met in person in February of 68, when we finally got together in person. Mm hmm and Jim and I were talking on the phone. And while he was in New York a million years earlier, he had come down with diabetes. Oh. And he fought with diabetes for the rest of his life. And he um, he uh, had it severely, very badly. He ended up losing his eyesight. 
Uh-huh. He had two amputations of his legs by the time I met, you know, talked in 2007. Yeah. We had talked on the night that we were going to get together a week later on February 10th in the morning. And we were going to ex- trade some, we used to trade photos. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you my Rock Rogowski, this picture of Rock Rogowski for your picture of Rene Goulet. And we do that. We did that for years. Yeah. We'd get some white castles and a pizza or something, you know, and this is what we do. <laughs> so we set up a date on, on February 10th. And this was um, two days before on the Thursday night, we were going to get together. Um, I got a call that he had passed away oh. after we had talked. And on that February 10th, oh, this was a week later now on the February 10th, we had his memorial service. Um, I did a, a eulogy mm. for Jim and I remember kind of going a little bit about how we'd met, like I just said, yeah. And cause he had a lot of wrestling fans there. Yeah. And at the end of the, at the end of the, uh, eulogy, I made the comment. I said, Jim, like we had done many times before we were getting together today at the exact time that I'm doing this talking to you right now. And I said, you know, Jim, I learned early on in life that the words in the program, program subject to change. I said, well, I'm here, Jim, and you're not. Program subject to change. I miss you, buddy. Yeah. Well, that was, that was it. You know, I get a little teary. I just think oh, about that. Understandably. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the cauliflower alley club at this point, mm-hmm. the cauliflower alley club. See how I brought that around. Yeah. The cauliflower alley club is, is an organization that's been around since 1966. And it originally started out with a group of wrestlers that would get together and meet behind closed doors. Fans were not allowed outsiders were not allowed. You had to be a wrestler, a promoter, or a, or a uh, maybe a wrestling journalist or, or a announcer to be involved. I joined the Cauliflower Early Club in 1980, paid annual dues of $25. Well, by the end of the, uh, by the end of the 2000 or the end of the nineties, of course they have annual con- reunions and the fans are invited and everybody's involved. And I'm there because the wrestlers brought me in mm-hmm. the, the red Bastines and the Nick Bockwinkles, you know, you got to be part of this. You, you know, you, you belong here. It was yeah. like, and, and that, I take that as the greatest honor in the world. Yeah. So it was red Bastine and Nick Bockwinkle and Dr. X Dick Meyer that brought me in to be on the board of directors of the cauliflower alley club. Oh, wow. Now at the time, the Cauliflower Alley Club. Here's who's on the board of directors when I come on. Killer Kowalski, Lou Thez, Penny Banner, lady wrestler. Yeah. Red Bastine, Nick Bockwinkle, uh, Dr. X. And then there were some other wrestlers, Tom Drake, uh, a couple of others that you yeah. probably wouldn't know. I come in there and at that moment, I was like the only non-wrestler promoter uh, involved. 
And Red Bastine and Nick Bockwinkle said, George needs to be on this board. He's earned it. And I get the applause. That is a great moment. Yeah. So now we go ahead. I'm on the board, number of years, and Melby dies. And Melby had also, I will back up, Melby had also been on the board a few years earlier. Okay. He had not been at this time. So when Melby died, I brought up the fact that the, at the meeting, I said, you know, we should really honor guys like Jim Melby. Jim was the pioneer for results records, putting results together, organizing history, getting me and so many involved. And there are so many out there, people that deserve to be honored because they preserve history. I said, we should come up with an award in Jim's honor. The James C. Melby Historian Award. They, They bought it. We loved it. I was in charge for the first couple of years to name the recipient of that award. Now, I am telling you, and I'm saying this to you, and I'll say it to everybody listening, and God Mm. hears me above. I never organized this club with the intent that I would get this award. Yeah. Okay? Understand, yeah. I wanted to recognize a lot of people that I knew that Jim would be proud to recognize. Yeah. So... I named the first recipient, Scott Teal. I don't know if you know Scott Teal. Scott Teal has many, he he is the premier, in my book right now, he is one of the premier book publishers, Crowbar Press. Okay. He's got a a couple dozen wrestling books and his books are, are, they're interviews with the wrestlers. They're from the wrestlers themselves and they're great. Mm -hmm. So if you ever want to look at Crowbar Press, look at the books he's published. Okay. They're great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, cheap plug, I have contributed to a lot of those books as well. <laughs> but anyway, Scott Teal was the first recipient. And then each year after that, I named a couple of other guys that, and, and that were really warranted to deserve to be recognized for their preserving wrestling history. Yeah. I left the board in 2010. Okay. It got to the point where I was unable to always get to Vegas and be involved in it. And I didn't feel I could serve them well. And so I stepped off the board. Well, in 2013, they decided they were going to give that Melby award to me. I got a call and they said, we want to give it to you. You deserve it as much as everyone else that's got it. And Jason Sanderson, who called me, he said, in fact, you might deserve it more than some of them. Yeah. So it's an honor. Yeah. Okay. So in February of that year of 2013, I'm at the Gulf Coast Wrestlers reunion that was held every year. And that was another reunion that they never let outsiders in. It was all wrestlers, promoters connected with the business. Mm -hmm. The people that ran it, Cowboy uh, Bob Kelly. um, Oh, boy. Joe Turner was involved in it. These are guys that you wouldn't know, but they were wrestlers. Um, a, a few others. They kept telling me, you've got to come to our reunion. You belong there. So this one year, I'm going to the reunion. Well, I get to the reunion, and of course, there's Cowboy Bill Watts, and there's Dr. X, and a, a few other guys that I know. And God, it's great to see you here, and it's fun to be here. Dr. X is there. And, you know, I've known Doc now since 1970. Mm -hmm. 
And I went up and I sat next to him at the table and I said, uh, I said, hey, Dick, I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm going to get the historian award at Cauliflower. Now, Dr. X is on the board at Cauliflower. Yeah. Still, <laughs> I said, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but I'm going to get the uh, historian award. He says, I know that. I said, well, I was wondering if I could ask a favor of you. I said, would you do the honors to be my presenter for the award? Because we get to choose who we want to present the award. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I said, would you do that? Now, you got to look at, I'm going to have to put my hands up here. You can see this. Yeah. His hand is on the table that we're sitting at. Uh-huh. And my, my hand is on the table. Pardon me. My hand is on the table. And I say to him, you know, would you do the honors and, and be the presenter? He goes and he takes his hand and he goes like this and he says, it would be an honor. Yeah. Wow. I went back to my hotel room and I called my wife. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm excited about this award, but something just happened that makes me more excited. Yeah. The doc said it would be my honor. Well, lo and behold, yes, he did. When we got to Cauliflower, um, Dr. X in his destroyer mask is that cauliflower. He stayed in the mask. And I want to tell you a funny story about that mask too. So remind me. Okay. He's got his destroyer mask on it at cauliflower alley all the time. He goes up to the, uh, the lectern, the podium. He puts me over. He talks about all my work that I've done the research, how I'm one of the guys that the boys turn to, to find out where they've wrestled and their results puts me over and he presents me the award. Absolutely a great moment. Yeah. But I have to tell you that the greatest part of it was is that the doc did it because he was, of all of the many wrestlers that I've had as favorites, yeah. doc has always been my personal favorite. Wow. And to, to have him as a friend is beyond comprehension. When he wrote his book, He, I still have all the emails. When he wrote his book, he would send me emails asking me questions about his career. And Vince Evans, the guy that wrote his book for him, he would say, okay, I want you to get in touch with Vince or we're going to give this to Vince. And so a lot of stuff that I gave Doc and he would clarify him. He asked me a question one time. He says, did I ever hold the AWA tag team title? These guys never kept track. Yeah. They, they didn't know. And I'd say, and I said, no. He says, okay, well, I thought I did. I said, no. I said, Dick, you held the AWA singles title for two weeks. Yeah. And we talked about that. Well, anyway, so when he wrote his book, um, his book came out. It's not by Crowbar, Crowbar, Crowbar Press. Get my tang tangled up there. <laughs> um, he has an excellent book. He really talks a lot about his life, his history, his wrestling. And it's, it's very accurate. Yeah. The only, he only had one mistake in it, which I pointed out to him after it was published. And he said, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, I didn't know you were going to say this. So, but Dick, Dick and I always stayed in touch. We talked to each other a couple of times every year on the phone. Yeah. Always got Christmas cards. I always called him on his birthday. And a year and a half ago, he was um, going through some, some bad health. He had had heart surgery a few months earlier and he's going through some bad health. And, um, 
I had heard that he was sick and I called and I was going to talk to him and I got his wife, Wilma, on the phone. Mm-hmm. And Wilma said, uh, you know, we're really scared right now. He's going in and out. He doesn't know us all the time. And yeah. I said, man, that's really rough. And I, I got off the phone with her and I went right over to the store and I got a nice sympathy card, get well card. Mm-hmm. I put a nice writing in it and I sent it off. Well, the very next afternoon, the very next day, at about 12 o'clock, I get a message on my phone from Wilma. And she said, I'm really sorry to tell you Dick passed away mm. about an hour ago. About an hour ago, Brian. Oh, yeah. So, like, I'm one of the first guys that she calls. Yeah. And that was in March of a year and a half. It's a year and a half ago now. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Dick was gone. And... uh was one of, it was the one funeral that I wished I could have went to. Yeah. But I, I wasn't able to get to Buffalo, New York mm. at that time. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I miss his, I miss his, I get a Christmas, I got a Christmas card last year from Wilma still. And I just talked with her not too long ago. But that was a, that was a great loss. Yeah. So now the story quickly about his mask. The mask. Dick Beyer became a wrestler in 1954. And from 1954 to 1962, he basically was what you'd call a journeyman wrestler. He'd go different territories. He'd win some, lose some. Good, good, good guy. Yeah. Baby face. Yeah. He goes into Los Angeles in 1962 and the promoter tells him, I'm going to give you the short Reader's Digest version, I promise. Okay. <laughs> he, he goes into Los Angeles in 62 and the promoter doesn't want Dick Beyer. He wants a guy under a mask. He wants the destroyer. So he hands Dick this mask. This mask is, as Dick described it, it was like putting a a, a gunny sack over your face. It itched, it scratched you. It was uncomfortable. And it actually went down. It was a long outfit that went around on his crotch to connect. And he wrestled in this. He says, I come back. You probably heard this part of the story. He says, I go back to the dressing room. This thing was so damn hot. I, I'm never going to wrestle in it again. I can't breathe. He threw it across the floor. He said, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. There's a wrestler in the corner, Ox Anderson. He reaches in his duffel bag. He says, Dick, try this. And Dick hands him this kind of a stretchy material mask that Ox Anderson had used different times in his career when he would be a mask man for a night. <laughs> a lot of times mask man were just one night deals or a couple night deals. Yeah fill a card yeah so dick tried it on it fit good around his eyes around his nose his mouth he could breathe it stretched a little bit it's made out of a woman's nylon or a woman's girdle the stretchy (laughs) girdle that's what the material was have you ever heard this i've not heard this no (laughs) okay so it's made out of this woman's girdle so dick he says, I could use this. I could go with this. So he goes, him and his wife, and by the way, his first wife at the time, her name was Wilma. Oh. Dick married his second wife. Her name was Wilma. Wow. Now, when have you ever heard the name Wilma except in the Flintstones? Exactly. That's what I was just going to okay. say. Yeah. So that's kind of a joke in itself. <laughs> but the first Wilma... Him and Wilma go to the Woolworth stores around the city in Los Angeles, and he is buying up all these girdles. 
And Wilma goes home and she starts making masks. <laughs> and on each of the white masks, she would put a different trim on them. One would have green trim around the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Yeah. Some would have red, some would have blue. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So then he started wrestling as the destroyer. That's the, the story of the beginning of the mask. Wow. Well, we get to, uh, so he's never wrestled again as Dick Byer. And he got so good. He is the only wrestler, mass wrestler, that was so good that he could dictate to promoters that I will not take off my mask. That's where I'm making my money. Yeah. And so from 62 to 67, the destroyer, whether he was in Indianapolis or in Texas or in California or Hawaii or Portland, whatever territory, the destroyer was huge. Yeah. He's wrestling in Indianapolis in 1967 for Dick the Bruiser, who's the promoter behind the scenes. Fans don't know this. Right. And the Destroyer's wrestling for the Bruiser, and Wilbur Snyder was Dick's partner in the promotion. Knock three times. Oh, sorry. That's my wife. Sorry. She's in the next the, room. Uh, <laughs> the... Um, he was wrestling in, in Indianapolis, and Indianapolis shared talent with Chicago. Vern Gagne's AWA shared talent with Chicago. So Vern actually wrestled the Destroyer on a Chicago card. AWA fans never got to see this. It was like a one-shot deal. Wow. When the match was over, Vern and Dick got together, and Vern said, you know, I'd love to have you come into Minneapolis meaning the Minneapolis territory. Right. Yeah. I'd love to have you come into Minneapolis. And Dick says to him right up front, he's, and they went to the playboy club after the match <laughs> to have drinks and talk. Okay. Uh, nothing else. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. Their eyesight probably improved. I don't know, <laughs> but um, they're talking it over and Dick made it point clear to him that I will never unmask. And Dick and Vern says, well, that's the thing. I don't want the destroyer. He said, I want, I want you to unmask at some point when your time with me is done, when the storyline is done. And Dick says, well, I'm not going to do that. He says, all right, how about we do this? Would you be willing to come in under a different mask and a different name, a whole different persona? And of course, Dr. X was recreated. Wow. The Dr. X mask totally hid his facial expressions that he had as the destroyer. Yeah. And he had a full tunic and dark outfit on. So the destroyer was gone. So for the next three years, the destroyer disappeared. Right. He's working for Burn. Yeah. So anyway, then he leaves. And when he left, he kept his promise. He was unmasked in a couple of the cities. And he took his mask off in St. Paul, which was the error in his book that I pointed out to him. <laughs> well, that's another story in itself. But he wrestled as the destroyer then for the rest of his career. We go to Cauliflower Alley meetings and everyone, all the wrestlers are there. And of course you recognize Nick Bockwinkle and you recognize Mad Dog and you yeah. recognize so on and so on. If Dick Beyer walked in, you wouldn't recognize him. Right. Because nobody's <laughs> seen the man's face since 1954, <laughs> at least fans. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So at every meeting, he was always in destroyer mask. Wow. We get to the banquet that one particular night, the big banquet, the awards banquet. Yeah. And the destroyer comes in the door. Now you got to remember the door to the banquet is way over here. 
-hmm. and the banquet uh, table and, you know, the stuff, the podium and everything is over here. Here comes Dick Byer as the destroyer in the door. Larry Hennig is up at the podium. He grabs the microphone and Larry doesn't need a microphone because he's got a voice that, you know, a great voice. Yeah. He bellows through the microphone and it's an inside joke, but it's funny. He bellows in the microphone. He said, Dick, take off the mask. It's over. <laughs> and without missing a cue, Buyer shouts back in his buyer, in his destroyer voice, Dr. X voice. Yeah. He says, and I'll quote, I can still kick your ass, Hennig. <laughs> That's great. The, the laughter in the place was great. Because, and it's just one of those moments you had to be there, but it was great. But yeah. they loved each other. I mean, yeah. they wrestled each other in the AWA. They traveled together. They teamed together. Yeah. Hennig and, and Doc were great friends. That's so awesome. that was the story of the mask. And I went way back to the beginning and brought you forward. That's great. I really. How many more years you got? Ah, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you one more thing, and we'll close it out. I just want to ask, what are you doing now these days? I'm doing exactly the same thing that I've always done. Okay. You mentioned at the onset of the program that um, I worked in banking. Yes. And I was fortunate enough to just make myself and my wife okay to be able to retire. So I retired at age 56. I turned 57 a couple months after I'd uh, retired, but I retired at 56. Wow. Since that day, um, I loved my work. I was in lending. I was vice president of a bank. I enjoyed lending. I was a ma uh, not only a manager, but also a trainer for, for, I enjoyed it. I loved it. Yeah but I never missed it a day since I left. What I've been doing since is I'm telling you the truth. Okay. There is not one day that has went by that I have not worked on something history-wise for professional wrestling. I get, true story, I get guys that call me up. They want to they know stuff. They want results. I have to look stuff up. Yeah. Sometimes I just roll it off the top of my head. Um. I'm always working on little results records, whether it be just of a territory or uh, a wrestler's career. I find it so entertaining, the stories that results tell. And unless you are into it like I am, you'll yeah. never understand what I'm saying. But yes, I live wrestling every day. And then of course, I enjoy being with my wife. We have, a, we have two grown daughters, we have two granddaughters. Um, this has been a tough year with the pandemic and a lot of other things going on with like it is for everybody. Yeah. So, you know, my prayers to everybody that is dealing with their own demons and trials along with uh, the pandemic to boot. Yeah. But, so, yeah, and I, I, I live wrestling to this day. Now, do I watch the stuff today? Like I said, no. Mm -hmm. Do I pay a little bit of attention to it? Yeah but I'm not interested in it. I will never do a life record of Roman Reigns or I'll never be interested in doing a life, uh, a results record of uh, Vince McMahon's territory from 1990 on. Yeah. Uh, that, that's not going to be of interest to me. So I do the old stuff. Sadly, I've lost a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, you know, I lost Dr. X, lost Larry Hennig 
um, coming up here on two years now. Yeah. This uh, in another month, it'll be two years. And that was another, that was another tough thing with Larry Hennig. Um, this November 17th. So we're coming up pretty soon to the anniversary of the time him and I were together. Yeah. We were at a, a local brewery in Minneapolis. They were doing a tribute to Rob. It was Robbinsdale. They were doing a, a tribute beer to Larry Henning called the Axis back. It was going to be oh. a limited edition beer. Yeah. Yeah. And Larry was there and I get invited along with Larry and his family, Lorraine and my, my wife, Lorraine and I, we go, I sit with Larry the whole day and Larry, he's going to get up and talk at some point during this. And Larry says to me, he says, I just, when I get up there, I just want to talk. I want to introduce my family. He loved his family. He's got a huge family. Yeah. And he was very close to his family. And he says, I just want to talk about the family and that he says, why don't you go up and introduce me and talk about the career stuff? Cause you know, more than me, <laughs> true story. So I, I, I went up and I introduced Larry and, you know, put him over and then introduced him to come up on stage. And we spent the rest of the afternoon there. I was selling some books. Larry was selling some, some uh, uh, pictures that he had there of Larry, the ax and Kurt, his yeah. son and, and Joe, Joe, his, Lenny. his yeah. uh, grandson. Curtis Axel in the in the uh, WWE, and we we talk all afternoon. This is Saturday. On the morning of the nineteenth, Monday, I get a phone call. It's Larry. Hey, Larry, how you doing? He says, "Man, we just didn't we spend enough time together Saturday?" He says, "Hey, he says I just I want to tell you how much I appreciate." all that you have done for me and all that you've done for all the boys. He says, and I, you, you just don't know how thankful we are. And I just appreciate it. And I wanted to tell you that I says, well, Hey man, you know, I love doing it and, and I have fun doing it. I said, and I thank you for all the entertainment and the friendship you've given me. And so we talked uh, maybe 40 minutes. Yeah. Get done. I say to my wife, I say, man, you know who that was? So that was Larry. I said, he's thanking me for what I do. I mean, those are little things. If you want to talk about anything I get out of wrestling, the things like with the doc and, and those things and Bastine in the locker room. And, you know, those are the things that really hit you. Yeah. So a week later, Larry dies. Oh, wow. I get the call and, uh, you know, I, I had a chance to say goodbye to him. But he called me up to thank me. And now that, see that, now that, that phone call means that much more. Yeah. And so if it sounds like I'm ever bragging, no. I am, I am, but I'm telling you that the rewards that I have gotten out of this wrestling business, yeah. when Vern Gagne died now five years ago, almost five and a half years ago, my wife and I, we're in Disney World. I get a call that Vern died. Yeah. I take it, you know, I got to find a secluded place because your Disney World, it's hopping with people and noise. Right. I get a call. I'm telling you that about an hour later, I get a call from the New York Post. A lady who's a reporter on the New York Post, she wants me to do an interview on Vern Gagne for the paper. 
I said, well, I'd be happy to. I told my wife, I said, you got to give me a couple seconds here. I told my wife and the friends we were, we went, we went there with some friends. I said, you got to have, guys are going to have to move on and let me have some time here. I got to do this. Yeah. I end up doing this interview with this lady. We do this interview. We're on the phone for about an hour. Mm-hmm. I make sure I told her, I said, I want to make sure you get Vern's stuff right. Yeah. So she puts the article out an hour later. She called me back. She said, I need to, I need to clarify something. So I clarified that I have the story and uh, you know, it, it's just stuff like that, that yeah. I go to Stan Kowalski, Stan Crusher Kowalski, the guy that started, that started me on this addiction mm-hmm. at his funeral. His son says to me, you have to do the eulogy for dad because he thought the world of you. Yeah. And so I did at, at the big memorial service. And um, I, I can't tell you how that, I, I hate doing them. Yeah, of but course. I love them. It's an honor to do it. It's here, uh, a, couple weeks, here a couple of weeks ago, I had um, a wrestler named Tom Andrews that passed away. And uh, old school fans would know Tom because he was one of the masked interns for many years in a lot of the territories. Okay. And uh, he's got a long history of masked wrestling too. So, but he passed away and it's like a daily thing. I lose somebody in my family and whenever any of the wrestlers die, I always get a call from one of the local uh radio stations, Patrick Royce. Do you know, you ever heard of Patrick Royce? I've heard of him. Yes. Yeah. Minneapolis paper. And he's, he's on KSTP radio. Yeah. Patrick and I, we'd go on once a year, we would do a wrestling show on the radio. And Patrick calls me when the guys dies or when he wants to do a funny story on a wrestler, (laughs) he calls me and makes sure I give it to him. So it's right. And when animal died, road warrior, Mm -hmm. that's a little bit beyond my era, but I'm still involved with wrestling at that point when when animal and hawk are around yeah uh you know who sid hartman was yes i know sid hartman yeah okay well he passed away but his son chad um when animal died chad called me and had me on the radio to talk about animal and the road warriors so this is what i'm doing since i retire and then people like you we somehow connect out of the blue yeah. and it gives me a chance to talk wrestling. And what I love most is just sharing some of the stories and the, and the, um, the little things. And b- believe me, we could do a whole series of these, Brian. Yeah. Because yeah. you could name a wrestler and I could tell you a bunch of stuff. And, oh. um, but I do this and I live it every day. I, I do something wrestling. Well, I, on that note, George, Thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate it. I've got a lot of insight today and people that listen to this, I know will too. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And to everybody out there listening to this, this man has a ton of knowledge and, uh, you know, just a great, just a great person. Thank you so much for taking the time. My wife will tell you, I cannot tell you what I had on yesterday <laughs> or what I ate for breakfast, but you can ask me something from whatever. And um, yeah, it's, it's been fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. You, you're doing a great job and Thank you. I find it very professional in how you've handled it. 
Um, I will ask you if you can send me a link or something, how to. Uh, yeah, I will do that when we're done here. Uh, I will, uh, we'll talk about it and I'll, and I'll send you the information, but again, thank you so much, George, for coming on. Thank you. All right. If you ever want to do it again. Yep. I've always got a couple hours. Oh, I'm sure we'll have some, some more times, but again, thank you, George. In the meantime, stay safe. God yep. bless. And same to you. Thanks.